by the time that we are about 11 or 12 years old, we have figured out, that's in, in quotes, we have learned um, what we need to do or not do in order to be loved. I'm Doug Bobes, personal trainer, best-selling author, and entrepreneur, and I'm on a mission to help others become the best version of themselves. So I'd like to welcome you to the Adversity Advantage podcast, where we will help you use obstacles, failures, and setbacks to give you that edge needed for success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life on how they overcame trials and turned them into triumphs. So please, sit back, relax, and get ready to be absolutely blown away by some of the wisdom and stories you're about to hear. Welcome back to another episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst, and I'm super pumped today to chat with uh, my friend Tara Kemp. Tara uh, actually got introduced to me through uh, my good friend Adam Sood, who um, we all know is one of the most uh, hardworking, you know, vegan movement activists. There is not only vegan in the vegan community, but just nutrition as well. Um, you know, he beat diabetes, and now he's on a mission to kind of help other people change their their life along with Tara. And Tara and him, I know, are working on some awesome projects um, with Mastering Diabetes. And Tara, if you don't know, she's a health and lifestyle coach, mental health advocate, self-love expert, writer, researcher, and speaker. And she is passionate about helping people find a relationship with themselves. And I'm super excited uh, to have you on, Tara. So welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's awesome to be here. Yeah, so I want to kind of dive in. I know like something that you're really passionate about on as I've you know followed your your content and just researched you is the whole inner child inside of us. And I know that um, you've done a lot of work on yourself um, as far as self healing. And I know a lot of what you struggled with was nutrition. Um, and so talk a little bit about like the inner child, what it is for those who may not know, and like what kind of work you've had to do to get you where you are today. Sure. So I love that you brought up the inner child. That's a great place to start. Um, so basically, by the time that we are about 11 or 12 years old, we have figured out, that's in, in quotes, we have learned um, what we need to do or not do in order to be loved. And that's basically like as children, we have we taken the world in you know, not to take away the complexity of the way that a child's brain works, but when we experience certain things or have people tell us certain things, we come to a conclusion in our minds and decide, that, and like our brain decides that that's true. So if you were younger and, you know, you lived in a household where you got yelled at for something or where you, um, people didn't pay attention to you in a certain way or you didn't get, um, the positive feedback that you wanted about certain parts of yourself, or maybe you were at school and someone called you a name or, you know, whatever it was. Like there are certain things that happen in our childhood that we take in as information and turn it into fact and just store it in ourselves. And those create certain patterns. And so then as we get older and we become adults and like our brains mature and we can understand things in a more complex, different way, that still all stays there, but subconsciously. And so inner child work is recognizing that so much of what we struggle with as adults goes back to what we struggled with as children. And um, through the process of becoming aware of those things, uncovering those things, being present with those things, we can take care of that inner child within us, which ultimately is what we need to do in order to take care of ourselves today as adults. And 
it might sound wild if you've never done that work or you haven't uh, explored it before, but it's, it's surprisingly true. Um, if you think back to, you know, just asking yourself, like, what was the thing that I most needed as a child that I didn't get? Or, you know, what did I need to hear when I was a child and feeling the most in the midst of a certain struggle? And then you think to, you know, what was it that I needed or needed to hear? And then, you know, if you were to apply that to yourself today, it so often is exactly what you need to hear right now as well. Um, and so that's kind of what the inner child work is, is recognizing that there are parts of ourselves within that token information that came to certain conclusions when we were younger that still resides within us and that needs are our, our comforting and our healing now as adults. And the beautiful thing is that as adults, we have the capacity to do that. We have the ability to give ourselves what we needed back then. And through that process, you not only heal that child part of yourself, but you also heal the present day part of yourself. And it's just this beautiful harmony. So well put and so well said. And you're right. I think a lot of people, um, they miss that part, right? Because they hear the whole healing the inner child and they're like, wow, I mean, how is that even possible? You were like five, six, seven, eight years old. But it's true. If you look at like a lot of, I mean, I just point back to a lot of like, look, if you look at a lot of relationship struggles, right? If you had a parent that was unavailable or, or whatever as a kid, you will tend to chase that type of relationship because that's what you're used to, right? You're used mm-hmm. to seeing that. Just like if you're used to watching your parents fight as you grow up and you're learning these behaviors, you're going to think that's normal for a relationship just to, to fight with people. Like that's normal to fight all the time. And I really think as somebody who has done a lot of healing work on themselves, I mean, I've, on myself, I've been in recovery for over 11 years from drugs and I've done a lot of work, um, especially like the last six or seven years on like healing that inner child because it didn't really make any sense to me that, well, I'm making good money. I'm super, uh, you know, I'm in good shape. I'm, you know, looking good. I got vision, this and that. Like, why do, why do I still struggle with self-confidence? And it went back to my inner child because I was bullied. I was abused as a kid. And I look back and like, that's all I knew was that I wasn't good enough. And so in my mind, I had that, that vision painted in permanently like etched inside of my brain that, that that's what like it needed to look like. I needed to con- consistently like always try to do better. So um, the other thing I want to talk about the inner child work is there's also, I think there's a, there's another, another piece of it. How do you think that people can manage doing the inner child work that, you know, that you're referring to and many others without being a victim? Because I also hear a lot of people, they just blame their childhood and they say, oh, it's because of my parents or it's because of this. And they, they, they use that as a way to just take the responsibility off themselves to do the work and they put it on somebody else. So what would you tell somebody who's like kind of struggling with that part of it? Sure. So I would say it depends on where someone's at in their healing process, because if someone has never really given themselves the space to acknowledge their pain or to recognize the things that they experienced as a child, that is the first step. They do need to acknowledge that. And someone might say, oh, that's a victim mindset. But if, if you don't acknowledge your pain, you can't work through it. And so we need to allow ourselves to feel compassion for the parts of us that have been hurt and that didn't get what we needed. But from there, you're also now an adult. And so it is, yes, like it's, it's kind of this two part thing where like on, on one hand, yes, we did experience hardships and we did have struggles and we did feel hurt as children that 
maybe hasn't been resolved at this point, but it is also our responsibility and within our power as adults to go back and do that work and give ourselves what we needed. And so it's this two-part thing of feeling compassion for ourselves while also standing in a place of empowerment to do something about it now. Yeah, and I, I totally agree with you. I think that we have to give people grace who have never done the work to be able to allow them the space needed to do so. Uh, I just think, you know, um, just a lot of, I mean, I guess I see a lot in recovery that people, I mean, just people I've coached or, through the years and they want to continue to blame their family dynamics or they want to blame, you know, things that happened in their childhood, which is cool as long as you're like doing the work to address that and taking the responsibility and knowing that, yeah, I had some things go in my way that were totally unfortunate and not ideal. I need to do the work to reprogram, help reprogram myself to start to deal with stress, uh, relationships, um, trauma, whatever, in different ways. Would you agree? Yeah, you know, and I think that something that can help in that process is that self-compassion piece, because as you are able to hold compassion for yourself and recognize that even when you make mistakes, you're always doing your best and that um, anytime where you're not living in a space of acting from pure kindness and love and understanding that you're coming from your own hurt. And that helps you to, when you look at things that you experience as a child, whether it's um, from family dynamics or at school or anything like that, you can see that anyone else who didn't give you what you needed was also doing their best and you can hold compassion for them as well. And I think that that often can help facilitate that process of, forgiveness and letting go and moving forward. Um, but you're right. It is definitely a balance of not only recognizing, okay, like these patterns that I'm experiencing now, I can see where they came from, but also standing in your power and saying, and I am choosing to not allow them to continue. Like I'm going to do the work to make my life take a different trajectory to shift these patterns, to rewire my brain and move forward uh, in a different way from here. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think the real work begins when we're faced with a situation that we have to choose to respond and react differently than we would have in, in past times, because that's when we can really, I think we'll begin to see that the work, that the, the, the work and the, um, the like journaling and uh, space that we've taken and all that stuff to discover ourselves is really starting to come to fruition. I know one of the things you're extremely passionate about and like really on a mission to uh, help people overcome is, is nutrition. I know you've partnered with Master Diabetes and you're doing things with them. How do you think the inner, the inner, inner child affects the way we eat? Yeah. So yeah, I've worked in the field of nutrition and lifestyle medicine since probably 2012, I think is when that started. It's almost eight years now. And I've worked in it in so many different capacities. And what I really focus on now is our relationship with food and how that comes back to our relationship with ourselves. And so a lot of that came from things that I experienced over the past couple of years working in this field of nutrition, just because when I would work with people, it's kind of, there's so many different ways that this manifests. So basically anytime that someone is struggling with food, it's because similar to addiction or anything else, it's like, you know, the drug is the coping mechanism and addiction is the symptom. And so 
food is the coping mechanism and disordered eating is the symptom, but what's really going on is this underlying issue that has to do with your relationship with yourself and the world around you. And so you can take the, the food issue and look at it and say, okay, this is showing me that there's something to work on, but to just change the food is in the majority of cases, not enough because there's still something underlying there. So if someone is dealing with um, feeling, you know, like they're just, their mind is consumed by food all the time, feeling like they need to have a certain body type, they need to lose weight in order to be happy, feeling like they are compulsively overeating or binge eating and don't know why and can't stop, feeling like they need to restrict themselves and getting that sense of control from that space. All of those different things surrounding food and eating behaviors, when you get to the core, come back to your relationship with yourself, your relationship with the world around you, your sense of purpose and meeting and the fact that all of those things are in a space of disconnect. And that's what I saw. I would work with people who, you know, came to Mastering Diabetes or when I was at Forks Over Knives or the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine, um, people would come and they would want to change their health and we would have all these resources to be able to give them. And even if they were working with coaches to help guide them to change their diet, there are some people who would just have so much trouble with it. And that was always because it would come down to this is a bigger issue. This isn't just about food. Like it's, it's not about the food. The food is the coping mechanism. The food is this surface layer thing that we can see, but the eating behaviors are coming from these underlying issues. And so until you get to the root cause, you're never going to actually facilitate sustainable change. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And here's a funny thing. I mean, I, I mean, I'll get back to what you said about your relationship with food uh, or your, your self dictates your relationship with food. I was, I was out in Arizona. I have a really good friend who actually lives in Phoenix and we were walking and we were just gotten on a hike. And we, I remember we would, we were picking up trash off the ground and we were picking up like Seven Eleven uh, wrappers and McDonald's bag. And he's like, you know what? I, he's like, you know what I've noticed, man? He's like, what? He's like, people are like littering how they feel about themselves. He was like, you never see like Whole Foods bags or Trader Joe's bags on the ground, right? He's like, you never see like, um, like, uh, Lara bar wrappers or, you know, healthier options, like healthy food, like wrappers on the ground. He's like, you don't see like, you know, smooth. Like, his point was, and it was so true that people are like, it's like how they feel about themselves is what they're putting out on the planet. And it's like, you know, people who are in tune with themselves and feeling good about themselves and have a healthy relationship with food, they they care more about other thing other things in their life because they see the value in health. I mean, would you agree with that? Yeah, you know, I've never thought about that way, but um, that definitely is an interesting uh, thing to notice, and I I can totally see where he's coming from. Yeah, it's because when you are in a space of feeling connected to yourself and respecting yourself and honoring yourself, then you're going to treat your body in ways that you know are, are good for it and best for it. And you're going to be your own caretaker. And so that will mean, you know, eating the foods that are best for you and most nourishing. And that doesn't mean only eating like the most strict, clean way per se, you know, there can be things that are good for you in terms of your mental health and emotional health. Um, but you will be living in a space where you are a caretaker for yourself. And like you said, that also facilitates being conscious in so many other ways and wanting to take care of the earth and, 
this, you know, greater earth community that we're all a part of. And so in most cases you wouldn't be littering and, you know, it, it all comes back to that feeling of connection and being able to honor yourself and um, feeling connected to the greater whole as well and acting that out for sure. Yeah. And I think what, what, uh, d- doing the, the work on yourself and the inner child does is I think it just then like facilitates change in so many other areas of your life. Because once you have that healthy relationship with who you are as a person, what you stand for and, and loving yourself enough to know that you have the ability to do that, then you, you have more responsibility in the way you eat because you've done the work on the inside to know that like, I have a choice on whether I'm going to eat, you know, a salad with, you know, protein for lunch, or if I'm going to eat like a cheeseburger with French fries, like, you know, that whatever decisions you're making now you have responsibility. Whereas before, maybe you didn't have the self-confidence or the self-esteem to know, like, to know that to to make a choice, to make that conscious, healthy choice, because your entire life growing up, you were told that you were stupid or you didn't know what you were talking about. And, um, and I think that, you know, once you switch your nutrition, I mean, I'm sure, I mean, I'm preaching to the choir here it can change everything else in your life. Making the smallest changes in your, in your, the way you eat can catapult so many things. I mean, I, I'm a trainer, so I just tell my clients, I mean, just drinking more water throughout the day, like how much of just simply drinking more water can have a vast effect on your sleep, your energy, your mood, um, your hunger, all those things. And the same thing with like eating more vegetables, which I know is something you're very passionate about. So what do you, you, what are you doing right now with mastering diabetes? I know you um, have partnered with them and you're working on some things there. Like what's going on with that? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's funny that you bring up mastering diabetes. I did work with them in the past. I'm not currently working for them. I left that role um, a little over a year and a half ago when I moved out to Flagstaff, Arizona to start my PhD program. Um, but I'm like best friends with Robbie Barbera, the founder and Cyrus Sambata, the co-founder is also a dear friend. Um, and so I love them. I stay very much in touch with them. I'm so excited for their book coming out. Um, highly recommended to everyone, but I personally am not working for them right now. <laughs> well, what I guess what I meant like on a deeper level is like the project, I guess you and Adam are working on together because I know he's affiliated with them. So I guess I just put two and two together. So my bad on that. Cause and then to piggyback, I wanted to talk to you because I know when they think of diet, people think of diabetes, they think they got to cut out carbs and cut out like fruit and cut out, uh, vegetables because they are, you know, potatoes and stuff because they think that that really contributes to, the high blood sugar and everything. And I wanted to hear your take on, you know, how, how using a plant-based diet can kind of reverse the role of diabetes as well. Cool. Okay. So starting with the project with Adam. Um, so Adam and I are working on a randomized controlled trial, looking at the role of nutrition in facilitating uh, resilience in addiction recovery. And so we're working with a recovery center in Austin, Texas called infinite recovery And um, people who come into infinite recovery will have the opportunity to join the study. If they are, they're randomly put into a control group or intervention group. The control group is eating what would typically be eaten at that facility. Um, And then the intervention group is eating a whole food plant-based diet that's uh, been built to be nutrient dense and also delicious and, um, they're, both groups are getting nutrition education regarding the way that they are eating. 
Um, and then we're looking at all sorts of things, whether that's physical health outcomes, um, mental health outcomes, we're taking fecal samples to look at microbiome diversity, all sorts of things. Um, I'm very excited about it. And really the role of nutrition or, you know, how someone eats their relationship with food in general hasn't really been studied in regards to addiction recovery. We know from certain studies that when people are taught healthy eating habits, that it translates into them actually using healthy eating habits. Um, and we know that during recovery, food plays a role in sometimes being an alternate coping mechanism for people. So binge eating and overeating is very common for those in addiction recovery. Um, starting to eat more high sugar foods, more processed foods is very common, high fat foods, um, as well as the fact that people have reported that during recovery, and I don't know if you experienced this at all, but that food can often be something that is very important in the process because it's something that they can then structure their day around. Whereas in the past, their day was structured around when is, you know, my next hit, where am I going to find the drugs? You know, it was around like using the, the, the substance, whatever their substance of choice or convenience was. Um, but then as they have that removed and they're in recovery, food is something, you know, you eat three meals a day. It's a way to structure your day. It's something to put your focus and attention on. And so it's very important in the process, but we don't know based on how someone eats, how that actually affects their recovery. And so that's what we're trying to, to look at. And um, I'm so excited about it because it brings together all of these different things. It's not only looking at nutrition from this scientific standpoint of how are these nutrients affecting the body and its healing process, which, as you know, I'm very passionate about. But what I'm even more passionate about is this idea of how does using food and bringing more conscious attention to it connect us to ourselves and to the world around us and foster resilience through building that connection? Because as someone starts to eat healthier, like we've talked about, they start to feel that sense of self-worth because when they're eating three meals a day and every time they sit down to eat that meal and they're fueling their bodies with something that they know is good for them, it's an action that is reflecting the fact that they feel like they're worthy of that, that they're someone that is worth taking care of, that deserves the best nutrition and it's a way to enact self-love toward yourself. And as you do that, then you build self-esteem and self-efficacy because you see yourself taking care of yourself. And when you start to understand the bigger picture of food in how it is affecting your body, how it's affecting the environment, the ethics, you know, looking at food as, you know, the way that you eat as an extension of your values, it brings so much more richness to the experience of eating and brings so much more um, meaning and purpose and connect to that. And it helps you connect with yourself and your values. And that is what I really feel like facilitates resilience for someone is having that connection to themselves, because ultimately that's, that's the thing that is going to help someone in the future when, you know, a, an event comes up, a challenge, a struggle, and they're in the space of, you know, how do I cope with this? They, they have that connection to themselves and that sense of self-worth to be able to fall back on rather than going back to the drugs. And yeah, so I, that I, is why, that's why I believe so much in the food portion. So that's what I'm doing with Adam. And that is very exciting. It's in the very early stages, but it is underway and I'm super stoked on that. Yeah. I mean, I kind of want to dive into that because as somebody who, had, who like my main thing is I didn't get into recovery through the through the 12 steps or anything. I mean, I've been to a handful of meetings in my life. I got into recovery through fitness 
and changing my nutrition and changing my coping mechanisms to stress and changing the people I hung out with and my outlook on life. So you're, what you're saying is something that I'm, I think like fit, I've always said fitness and nutrition are two of the most underutilized tools in recovery in treatment. Mm-hmm. I think they should be the foundation of every treatment program should be, they should have, you know, dietitians and they should have education on the importance of nutrition. I mean, fitness. So I was actually at a uh, treatment center. I trained patients there for about, I think it was about two or three years. Um, and I absolutely loved it. And one of the things that I was always trying to stress is like nutrition is so important. You think about people when they're getting into treatment, they're, they're in the most cru- crucial times of their recovery is probably the first few months because that's like when like things like shit hits the fan and it's real and they're in group yeah. therapy. They need their energy to be stable. They need to be able to stay awake. They need their cognitive function to be um, at its peak and like eating sugar and eating processed foods. I mean, not, not only will um, dam- it can damage um, that of a normal person, but somebody who's been using drugs and alcohol for a period of time, I mean, it makes it worse because they're either doing more of it, their brain's not already not stable. So, and I've talked about like how nutrition plays a role in, in energy and sleep and self-confidence because that's all important in recovery. If you think about a lot of the times people begin to use drugs anyway, it's a, you're, it's a symptom of something deeper, right? So like we talked about earlier mm-hmm. and that if they're eating crappy food and they're putting on weight, they're going to feel worse about themselves. So like if they're eating good food and they're starting to feel better about themselves, they're thinking clear, they're looking better. They have that confidence to know that they are worth eating, um, eating well, then, you know, things will start to be better. So I think it's incredibly exciting what you and him are doing. Uh, I mean, shout out to you guys. Cause I know it's not an, it's not an easy thing to tackle. I know I faced a lot of resistance and yeah, I still do with, with people when it comes to, um, when it comes to like my, my views on recovery, because a lot of people are, they're more traditional, like, you know, therapy, AA, uh, you know, treat, you know, treatment for six, seven months, whatever it is. And there's no, there's no rebuilding of like the damage that's been done. So I appreciate what you guys are doing. Mm, well, thanks for saying that. And you're so right that, exercise and movement is a huge part of that as well in terms of, you know, building that respect for the body in the same way that, you know, paying attention to what you put into your body fosters that connection, paying attention to what you're doing with your body and how it feels and what it needs is always going to facilitate, you know, more connection and more. um, Yeah, I just think that's so important in recovery. And so, you know, the fitness portion is super important as well. And I love that that for you was such a huge thing um but yeah thank you um we're we're really excited about it i'm really excited to see what comes and it has been a huge process it's been a year and a half in the works um but it's finally underway and research studies are no joke um but it's it's really exciting so thanks yeah you're welcome and i think once you get through the weeds of and you're able to discover some of the like real results that this is going to produce people will really start to buy into it even more because even now it's like i remember just, I, I would always mess with my, I lived with my grandparents shortly after I got out of jail and uh, back when I was, I guess I was 21 and I would always mess with them. I was like, how come you guys like spend more time? Look, you spend like six months um, like looking at like where you're going to go on a vacation, but you spend six seconds looking at what's in, not even six seconds on what you're eating. Like, how does that make sense? And it's like, it's just a generational thing. And it's people that like, they just don't know any better because as a society, we're conditioned to put our focus in, in things such as those things. Not that that's not important. That, I mean, that's not what I'm saying. 
But this whole nutrition part of how much of a bigger role it plays in the other areas of our lives is so overlooked. And I'm finally, I'm, I'm excited that it's finally now uh, having more light shed on it because I know for me, when I was eating like shit all the time, it made my adversity and everything I was going through worse because I wasn't feeling good. I didn't have the energy to go out and look for jobs. I didn't have the energy to work out. I didn't have the energy to like have like a deep, meaningful conversation because my brain and my body was just so clogged with garbage. Um, so like what, what kind of things are you, do you like to do? Like when you're like, when, when things are, are tough for you and like, I'm sure you still face adversity. I know you've gotten through a lot of, um, challenges throughout your life. What kind of, what would be like one thing in the last, I don't know, a couple of years, couple of months that's been really hard for you to face so that you've managed? How'd you do it? And like, what kind of things did you implement? <laughs> oh man, it's so funny that you're asking me this right now. Um, cause I'm going through something really hard right now. Um, with my partner, he's not well. Um, and so he's, yeah, that's, maybe not my story to fully tell, but right, right. Um, basically his health is like super suffering lately. And we've had to, um, like I'm, I need to be based in Flagstaff. I'm doing my PhD work and have a lot going on with this research study and my classes and all sorts of things on top of the like coaching and retreat hosting that I do and all of that. Um, and so he's spending time in San Diego where he um, feels is the best place for him to be right now if he does that. And anyways, it's just been a real struggle to have a partner who is suffering and want to be able to help but know that I need to take care of myself first and navigate that together. Um, anyways, that's been really hard. And I'm like very much in the midst of that right now because um, his health just seems to be getting worse. And um, so yeah, anyways, that is the current hardship. And what has really helped me through it is that number one, just connection to myself because I'm self-aware and that self-awareness, as much as it can be painful at times to feel all the things going on within yourself, it also gives me the ability to know what I need. And so I am able to take care of my needs and communicate that to whether that's him or my friends or support systems or just to myself. Um, in in journaling or knowing what I need to do to take care of myself. And um, I also have learned over the past couple of years certain practices that really keep me grounded and connected to myself. And so um, movement, as you mentioned, is one of those things. Um, I love, love, love running. And even just getting out for a walk in the fresh air does wonders for me and my mental health. Um, meditation is huge for me. Meditation is, I'd say, my biggest grounding practice. It is um, like a, a mental workout. It keeps my brain in the state that I want it to be in, in terms of my ability to be a witness to what's going on within me, to shift my focus away from getting caught up in whatever not helpful thoughts uh, come up and um, being able to release those and refocus my attention and things like that. Um, and just being present with my body meditation also helps me to be really present with myself um, and journaling. I'd say meditation and journaling, like my two big, like these two things are the practices that, that get me through everything. Um, and because I have those things like journaling for me is a space. I have a very busy mind. Um, I 
have tendencies towards anxiety or obsessive thinking and journaling is a place where I can take everything that's kind of swirling around in my head and get it out onto the page and make sense of it and see it clearly and know where I'm at um, and also have a space to just lay it all out know that it's a, a safe place for myself to process things and be honest with myself and that self-compassion that I have gives me the ability to be honest with myself because I know that whatever comes up I can hold a safe space for um, and so all of those things have really served me because it it like I said I have that self-awareness to know okay here's what's happening for me and this is what I need whether that is you know, I need to spend more time with my friends and have that social support, or maybe it's I need to spend less time with people and just spend time alone. Um, or maybe it's I, you know, just whatever it is that I'm able to, to give myself what I need and to be patient with myself in the process and know that, you know, I can acknowledge the places where I'm hurting and also acknowledge the places where I can show up more um and i feel like it's really enabled me to show up for my partner as as well as i can and ride it out and trust in what's coming and know that it's all going to be okay and so yeah anyways that's that's the struggle and that's what i've been doing to get through it and of course you know food is not something that i food has become so second nature to me that i don't typically think about it when I talk about this, but obviously taking care of myself in addition to the running, just making sure that, you know, I'm nourishing my body in the ways that it's needing um, is definitely something that I stick to as well. Yeah. I'm really sorry you're going through that. I can understand how, how it makes you feel when you're kind of torn between caring for yourself and caring for someone else. I know I felt that way in the past and found myself um, questioning a lot, right. Within myself uh, or, you know, the situation and everything else. And that's where I think you're right. Journaling um, and meditation and running, I think are all important. It's funny you say that because running for me, um, I mean, yeah, lifting weights and all that stuff has been great. The running part has been what's been most uh, healing for me um, because it's like a walk. It's like a moving meditation for me, right? I heard you talk about meditation. That's something I've really gotten into the last, I guess, probably the last year um, is meditation. I, I'm, I was always the guy who could never sit still. I know you heard you talk about anxiety and obsessive thinking. And so meditation was always a challenge for me. And then, and then I just kind of just, I did it the way I knew how to do it. And I would just start with five minutes here, five minutes there, 10 minutes here, 10 minutes there. And then slowly I'm progressing to now where I can, I'm, I'll meditate some days for like 45 minutes twice a day. And I think I heard, um, I don't know if you know who Robin Sharma is. He wrote the book, The Monk Who Sold His Ferrari, mm -hmm. right? And I've heard him talk about healing and I've heard him talk about what to do with like the pain inside of you. And he talks about getting it out, getting those thoughts, those emotions, those, those feelings out on the paper and the, uh, the amount of relief it can give you. And so I think what you're doing is amazing with that. Um, I want to kind of like, I, we'll wrap this up here in a few minutes. And I kind of want to talk a, a little bit about um, the plant-based lifestyle. Cause I know that's something that you're pat, you're really um, extremely um, focused with. I actually, uh, went plant-based for a few months last year. I just, it's funny, like I got, you know, I got, I mean, obviously Adam helped me and then, you know, Rich Roll was very inspiring in my plant-based journey. And I got connected to several other people who connected me, several other people who had me on the, had me on a kick. And I just kind of ended up just like, I wouldn't say falling to the wayside, but I just didn't, I ended up just getting late, like lazy-ish lazy ish with it, even though I felt great. And I didn't take the time to really figure out like how I could add in more food to increase my energy and all that. Uh, 
so talk about like the plant-based lifestyle, maybe like a few of the misnomers because people hear the word vegan. They're like, Oh, those people are crazy. I guess what, you know, when people, we hear the word <laughs> vegan, it's like, Oh, they're crazy. They go to those, they do the, the stuff with the pigs. They, they don't like meat. They're like standing on the corner of the roads being like, no more meat, like save the animals. And, and yeah, there is obviously a lot of that goes on. Right. And I'm not, there's obviously there's nothing wrong with any of that. As a matter of fact, like I, I support that to a certain extent. But it's a lot more than that, as we know. So like, talk about the plant-based lifestyle, some of the things that people get wrong about it, and maybe some of the positive impacts you've seen, not only with like your, your physical health, but your mental health as well. Sure. Yeah, that's a lot in one question in a few minutes. But <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, for me, a plant-based lifestyle has been incredibly healing, not only physically, but also mentally and emotionally, and kind of goes towards what I was saying before that we're hoping to see in the study because for both Adam and I, we have felt that a plant-based diet has really been such a positive influence in our lives in terms of connecting us with our food and ourselves and our bodies. I mean, like you alluded to earlier, we live in this world that um, societally is very disconnected from what we eat. And as a society, it facilitates that, you know, we'd buy these foods that are all packaged and that don't even resemble what it once was. I mean, when you look at like a Dorito, it's like, what even is this made of? Or a, like a gummy bear. It's like, you don't, you don't know. Um, and when you drive through at McDonald's or go get ice cream at Dairy Queen, like you, you don't know where that food came from. You don't know what farm it was at, where it was grown, the different processing that it went through to get to that package to your mouth. And so we're super disconnected from this process. Most people don't even know, you know, what it would even look like to grow certain foods um, or where they're grown or what that process entails. And so um, when you start to pay more attention to your food, it really fosters that, that conscious awareness of where is my food coming from and what does that mean and what are my values around that and how do I want to use my ability as a consumer to buy certain things that support my values and also to take care of my body and myself in the ways that I feel are best. And to me, a plant-based diet really helps to facilitate that. I mean, you could say that any type of dietary pattern where you're paying attention, not just to calories and macronutrients and things like that, but bringing that awareness to what is the meaning behind what I'm eating and really paying attention to the actual foods um, and the purpose behind it. Um, but in terms of, I guess, misconceptions about a plant-based diet, I would say that, you know, a lot of people feel like you're not going to get enough protein or that you're going to waste away and be, you know, skinny and not able to gain muscle or that it won't taste good. It won't, you know, it'll be boring. Um, and those things are all pretty quickly remedied as long as you play around with it and have fun with it and, and do some research or have a guide of whether that's a coach or a dietitian of some sort helping you along the way. Um, I mean, all foods that are not highly processed, you know, like sugar doesn't have protein, something like that, but all foods that are whole foods have protein. Bananas have protein, apples have protein, potatoes have protein. And as long as you're getting enough calories, you'll get enough protein. Um, you literally don't see protein deficiency in the United States unless it is someone who is severely, severely sick, whether that is, you know, basically if someone can like go outside and go for a walk and like have a normal life, 
they're not protein deficient. Um, you see protein deficiency in people who have severe eating disorders and have to be in inpatient treatment because they're wasting away or in people who are in foreign countries that don't have enough access to calories in general um, and are extremely malnourished, you'll see protein deficiency. Otherwise, you don't really see it. Um, and if anyone still feels concerned about the ability to you know, build muscle or perform as an athlete, let's say, on a plant-based diet, the documentary Game Changers on Netflix is definitely the place to go for that information, um, just to, to see it all and hear from athletes themselves who are eating that way. Um, the misconception that, you know, there's not enough variety or that, you know, it'll be boring. That's just, you know, in the same way that with the food that you eat now, you need to, you know, play around with it and have fun with it and find the things that you like. It's all, it all comes down to finding the things that you like. Like not everyone's going to like, you know, kale and carrots and it's not, you know, it's not like you eat salads every day. Like I actually in the winter don't eat salads very often at all just because it's cold here in Flagstaff even though I'm in Arizona Flagstaff's up in the mountains um and so we get tons of snow and it's like 15 degrees in the morning and you know you eat you know soups and burritos and sandwiches and burrito bowls and all sorts of buddha bowls and Indian food and Chinese food and you make sushi and you know they're just so many different things to eat and it's it actually for me expanded my palate and expanded the amount of variety that I eat in my diet I've eaten so many new different fruits and found so many different sauces and flavors and things that I love whereas before you know I mostly was eating your typical like whether it's peanut butter and jelly which actually is vegan um but just you know like plain chicken breast or like and with some rice on the side and some steamed veggies or whatever it's like if you're if you're switching to a plant-based diet you actually get tons of variety um and it can be really fun if you allow it to be and you just find the foods that you love most and you eat a ton of those and you enjoy it and so it all comes down to just paying attention and putting in that little bit of extra effort at first but then ultimately like for me at this point i've been eating this way for nine years and I don't even think twice about it like when I go to the grocery store I just like I have fun when I travel when I'm you know in business meetings it's just like it's all it's it's just fun and it's just how I eat it doesn't really take at this point for me it doesn't feel like effort it just is and um you know I truly believe that people can all get there um, but I also don't think that it has to be an all or nothing thing. Like, you know, as you said, you tried it and it took that extra effort. And it, at that point, it wasn't the right time for you. And that's okay. Like, I'm sure that what you did expanded your palate or gave you some experience to help you to eat more plant-based now than you did before. And even that is beautiful and amazing. And so it doesn't have to be all or nothing. You know, the more plants that you eat, the wider variety and the more whole foods that you eat, the better it's going to be. Um, and as you, as I started with, as you start to like expand that and see the bigger picture of how that affects the environment, the sustainability of our food system, of our population, taking care of, you know, this home that we have on planet Earth and, you know, the different values that you have around how you want animals to be treated and things like that. It becomes this bigger picture thing, which so, with so much more meaning to it. And that's really beautiful, too. Yeah, I mean, you said so many good points in there, and I and I love what you said about uh, the whole plant based 
uh, you know, plan and like, and like following it and what it does for you and expanding your palate and, and talking about like how, like a lot of people, they think they, they have to cut things out, right? They got to cut out, um, meat. They got to cut out dairy. And not, obviously, yes, that's part, that's obviously a big part of it. I think a bigger, the big part is just adding things in. There's a lot of people who don't eat totally, fruits and vegetables. Totally. There's a lot of people who don't eat nuts and seeds. They don't know how good like a purple sweet potato is or mango. I know Adam loves mangoes, you know, right? So like, mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, but when they're able to expand their palate, that might then start the, the snowball of making other changes in their life and, and doing the research and learning about it. Like for me, I'm a research nerd. So it was really fun for me to research how to integrate different different things into it to make sure I was like more the most optimal I can like loading up on hemp seeds loading up on quinoa like the the foods that had the complete proteins right so and I also think like people you, you it's like you can't knock it till you try it right I I tried it I'm not not I, I honestly when people ask me how I felt I felt the best that I felt in a long time my skin my clients were telling me my skin was like glistening it was like weird I was like well, my face mm-hmm. Right. And I know that's like one of the first things people notice is the skin, right? <laughs> and, and I think watching a documentary like Game Changers, watching, um, you know, Forks Over Knives or something where you're able to see from a different perspective other than, ooh, vegan. That means you got to eat a lot of tofu and stuff, right? Like soy. And like it's so far from that. I mean, as a matter of fact, Adam got me turned on to the whole whole foods plant-based thing where you just eat nothing but whole foods. And I felt amazing Mm -hmm. because I was eating like nature's food. And it's not to say that I, um, I couldn't go back to that because I've, I've honestly, I've thought about it because I just know how much better my digestion was, but it also maybe gives people a different approach that maybe you don't need to eat like pounds of meat every week. Maybe you just, maybe we eat a half a pound or a pound or, or whatever. And, and, and then you're slowly incorporating more things that are not only, um, sticking to your values, but they're helping to you know, do less harm in the environment. Maybe you're also like trying to prevent, um, you know, illness like long term for your family. Because a lot of what people are missing is that they try to go like all or nothing. I mean, most people like they're eating like so poorly that making small changes of just eating more fruits and vegetables will do them so much more good than if they didn't. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. So, uh, the one question I always ask people is, um, this will be the final question is if you, um, or a loved one or or somebody was say like young Tara right now, say you're talking to young Tara and Tara is going through some, some crazy hard times. You're hopeless. You're in the depths of despair. You have no way out. There's some darkness. Like what, what kind of advice would you tell her and why? Hmm. Well, the first thing that I would say is that it's okay to not be okay. Um, I think that so often we feel like we need to always be happy and thriving and on top of everything and have our shit together, but we're, we are messy humans. And part of life is having these dark parts and these low periods and being imperfect. And so I would, I would say that. And um, I would say that sadness and grief, it's all just, love and um just the other side of it you know when when you love something very dearly and it's taken away or you experience struggle with it you know that that loss or that grief is just coming from the fact that you have love for that thing and so you can even feel gratitude amidst 
the sadness, but that there's no need to try and escape it, um, that all of our emotions and feelings are worthy of being felt. They deserve to have their messages heard. They have something to tell us um, and that it's going to be okay that, you know, in that all of all of our parts are okay, that even the parts of us that feel wrong or shameful or broken are not. They're part of our wholeness and they're part of our humanness and that we are beautiful in all of it um, and that any type of pain that we are experiencing is temporary and will pass and there's another side to it. Just have to ride it out. Amazing. So well said. I think people, when they hit pain or they hit times of hardship in their life, they want to like push it away as fast as they can. And in doing so, they turn to things such as food, drugs and alcohol, you know, sex, gambling, money. And then it makes that adversity that much worse. So I, I love what you said there when it says, you know, it's okay to, to not be your best. It's okay to be imperfect. It's okay to be in a place of, uh, of struggle and that you just got to just know that it will pass and just keep doing the small things necessary to get through it. Uh, Tara, I really enjoyed this interview. Uh, appreciate you coming on. So if more people want to find out about like your retreats, your workshops, what you have going on, where can people find out more about you? Yeah, the best place uh, to connect with me is Instagram. It's at Tara Kemp underscore. And then also um, my website, TaraFKemp.com will have coaching information, upcoming retreat information, all that jazz. So those are the two main places. Perfect. I'll make sure to put it all in the show notes for everybody to see. So once again, Tara, thanks for coming on. Tons of great insight and wisdom. And um, I appreciate y'all listening to this episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst, and we will chat with you next.